This week on the Science of Politics, how anxiety in response to threats changes our political behavior. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The COVID-19 virus has upended Americans' lives and heightened our anxieties. That's likely to have a lot of political consequences. How do Americans respond to imminent threats? How does our anxiety change how we seek information, who we trust, and what policies we support? Today, I talk to the experts, Bethany Albertson of the University of Texas and Shana Gadarian of Syracuse University. They are the authors of the Cambridge book, Anxious Politics, Democratic Citizenship in a Threatening World. They find that Americans want information, trust the experts, and seek protective policies in response to public health threats like infectious disease. But it's not all rosy. Our biases increase, and our instincts are often to blame outsiders. This is a special conversational edition. Listen in. Bethany, why don't you start out with a uh, summary of the book for, for the non-academic audience? What, what were your big findings and, and their implications? Uh, we were interested in how anxiety changes the way people engage in politics. And so we set out to explore, you know, when you're anxious, how does that change the way you look at the news? Who do you trust? What kind of politics are you going to support and pursue? Um, and so we looked in it in a couple of issue areas, um, most relevant to our conversation today, public health, but we also looked how anxiety plays out in immigration and um, terrorism and climate change. So those were our four issue areas, and we'll speak mostly about public health today. Um, but the overarching um, argument of our book is that when we're anxious, we seek out protection and this need to protect ourselves because being anxious is this uncomfortable feeling has ramifications for when we look at news, there's certain types of news we look at when we're anxious. And when we put our trust in other people, there are certain sorts of people we put our trust in. Um, and we support, you know, different sorts of politics, policies than when we're not anxious. Um, so that's kind of a broad overview of what we're up to in the book. So Shana, what uh, do, do people normally think uh, are the effects of, of anxiety on, on political behavior, both the public and in the scholarly community? And, and where do you confirm that and challenge it? Sure. I, so I think the public and the scholarly community actually have very different views of anxiety. So I think generally our sense from maybe political theory and from kind of public discourse is that anxiety and fear are bad for politics because they don't they make you um, rely on um, your fears and it makes you rely on things that might not seem rational in making decision making um, and that's actually contra to a lot of the literature in political science um, most notably the kind of affective intelligence literature and um, some of the kind of work that comes out of that um, which would suggest that in fact, anxiety and emotion more generally are important to rationality. They go hand in hand to rationality and that we can't actually um, do, make decisions um, well in the absence uh, of emotion. And that anxiety in particular has this nice function, according to the affective intelligence literature, um, in getting people to pay attention and make decisions in politics based on new information rather than standing decisions. And that standing decision in political 
political life is usually partisanship. So in fact, anxiety in the affective intelligence literature is great because it gets us to like actually pay attention to what's going on in um, elections, for instance. I think where our book comes in is somewhere in between, which is that anxiety is a tool that has both um, normatively good implications, but also some troubling implications. So one of them is we do find in one of our empirical works that anxiety gets people to pay attention to new information in the news. And that's really good when we want people to pay attention to threats, but it also gets you to pay attention to the most threatening information that's in the environment. I think many of us are experiencing that right now. Um, So it's really important um, to get people to pay attention Um, when there is a threat in the environment. But sometimes what happens is we pay attention to that which is most threatening, which only seems to make us feel more anxious. So there is that, um, there are these kind of, anxiety as a double-edged sword kind of findings all throughout the book. So Bethany, give us a little bit of the the background of how this book came together and and your co-authorship and sort of what came first in in putting this together. Well, you know, Sheena and I both went through graduate school at a time when the affective intelligence literature was, I feel, you know, really taking hold. I remember reading some of that work in grad school and thinking um, my first reaction was, you know, this is wonderful. Um, it's been so cognitive, right? And and the way that emotion had been, um, you know, kind of either ignored or derided in the literature, it was seen as what, you know, silly people used to make political decisions or people who weren't well informed. And so, you know, I think both Shana and I are, are excited about that, but we're also thinking about it as like, that's more complicated, right? So we wanted to engage with that piece of um, the literature that that got us excited, um, to use emotional terms, but also like try to square it with what we saw happening in politics, which is, you know, campaigns strategically using anxiety, using fear in order to get votes, not to get people informed. Although that would be lovely if we had politicians who were like, how do we scare people into becoming better democratic citizens? We don't think that's actually what they're up to. So, you know, the the kind of the theoretical thing we were pursuing was how do we make space for these interesting findings of emotion and politics in what we see as um, kind of the partisan and persuasive world of, of campaigns and elections. Um, and then the, the other kind of, story I like to tell about how our project started because, you know, political scientists or academics in general can be very like, um, it was completely intellectual. It was completely about the ideas. Um, you know, the practical side of it was, um, Shana was finishing up graduate school um, and I was finishing up this pre-doc um, and I was going to Washington and um, we were friends and we wanted to stay in touch. Um, and so, you know, what better way to stay in touch um, than say, we're going to start doing some studies together. Um, and it was, you know, initially just one study. And then, I don't know, we just kept going. So Shana, tell us about uh, the differences across these uh, four areas that you you studied, uh, public health, immigration, terrorism, and climate change. And uh, if anything stood out about the public health threats uh, relative to the others? Sure. Um, So as Bethany said, we started off with basically one study. And our first study was using immigration as a policy area. Um, Immigration is what we 
call in the book, um, uh, we call it a framed threat. Now we can like, we can think of these as partisan versus nonpartisan threats across these four policy areas. So immigration is one of these areas where not everyone um, across the political spectrum thinks about the threat in the same way. So um, when you ask people, which we did in our first study, to tell us what made them anxious about immigration, there are different things that make people anxious, right? So um, in immigration, it's the loss of jobs and um, competition, and it's um, uh, immigrants taking um, social services and loss of culture. And then there's some other people who think about um, the threats from immigration as being exploitation of immigrants. Um, and so th these areas um, in the book are ones where, so immigration and climate change are ones we call frame threats. That is, politicians need to do a lot of work to try and convince you um, that you should be scared and particularly what is the threat. And that's different than, say, terrorism and public health, uh, and maybe public health has changed, and we can talk about that, um, where the the threats are kind of immediate, and they're bodily, and they are, um, perhaps they're dealing with kind of existential threats about per, um, death. And so they're ones where we don't actually need politicians to necessarily tell you that um, you should be scared. Right. Democrats and Republicans alike are scared about terrorism after 9-11. Um, so, you know, we're going to tell you. So the reason we have these four policy errors is because they vary on these dimensions of this kind of, again, what we call in the book framed versus unframed. But you can think of them as partisan versus nonpartisan. So politicians in these partisan areas both have to um, tell you what to be scared about. And then there's a benefit to one party over another over what kinds of policies people want um, and what they think of as protective because the parties have different areas that they are seen as stronger on. We, you know, like the honest truth is part of the reason public health is in here is that um, I had a postdoc um, through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, for two years studying um, health policy. And one of the ways that we, that I used that time there was to, we added the public health studies, but they actually work really well um, as a contrast to, in the book, at least to these immigration store studies, because um, uh, it, we were, it wasn't hard to make people across the political spectrum anxious about, say, a smallpox outbreak, which is what we talk about in the book. Um, but again, I think one of the things we'll, we'll get to in this conversation is how that might have changed over time since we, since we did the book. So, Bethany, one of the, the big potential benefits of anxiety that you find is in um, information seeking and evaluation of expert uh, information. Um, tell us about that and how much of that do you think we're seeing? How, how much of the good side are we seeing in the current COVID-19 outbreak? So, well, the first good effect of anxiety, which Shana pointed to as well, is that it gets people informed. Um, and she also noted that it biases information processing, it biases towards the threatening information. Um, and maybe in the COVID-19 world, that's exactly the information we need, right? And so this could be the circumstance or one of the circumstances under which um, both the getting people to pay more attention to the news and getting people to take in the scary news, the threatening news, um, I would argue is good for the mass public. Um, we're all having to make some pretty hard sacrifices right now, or being asked to make um, hard sacrifices right now. 
Um, and what makes that easier or more of a no-brainer for me is, is I see on the news what can happen when people don't make these choices, right? So I think that um, one good thing with anxiety in politics is it gets people informed. Um, maybe it's directing us to the information we need. This all gets much more complicated when politicians are generating things for us to feel anxious about. And we have debates about whether or not these are real threats or not, right? Um, when the anxiety is based around something that shouldn't be partisan, that is an immediate bodily threat to all of us, um, then we should all feel anxious and take in the threatening information and take protective actions. Um, okay. The other side that I think is good, and I think maybe Shana can come in and talk about the negatives more, but um, the other side that's good is in our public health studies in particular, we found when people are anxious about public health crises, they put their trust in medical experts or in people with medical expertise. So in the smallpox study, for instance, people who are more anxious about smallpox through our um, experiment, we manipulate this by having people read a newspaper article that's about a current smallpox outbreak or a smallpox outbreak that happened 25 years ago. Um, and it's important to note that in this study, we of course debrief the subjects at the end and, and tell them that there, there is no smallpox outbreak, thank goodness. Um, but when they read about that story, if they've read about it, having just happened, um, that boosts their anxiety compared to the historical story. Um, and then with that boosted level of anxiety, we give them a list of people. Who do you trust? Um, and the, the people and the organizations um, are, you know, some of them are political, some of them aren't, some of them are medical experts, and some of them aren't. And what we find is that anxiety about a public health crisis boosts trust in things like the CDC, in these organizations with, with you know, medical expertise to offer. It doesn't boost trust in non-medical or medically oriented facets of the government. It doesn't boost trust in um, like politicians. Um, we gave people a chance to trust Oprah. It doesn't boost trust in Oprah. Um, and so we walked away from that study seeing a really clear, normatively positive side of anxiety in politics, that in a public health crisis, anxiety gets people to put their trust in experts. Good to hear the good side, but Shana, you, you, now your turn to tell us the downsides. So I think the first we can, we can think about um, in the information seeking, this, this bias that we see um, in information seeking and evaluation toward threatening information. Again, I think one of the downsides here is that people kind of spin up their own anxiety, right? I, I always use the example of like, if you, it's very cu current, right? Is, um, if you have a headache and you go on WebMD, it's not that hard to convince yourself you have a brain tumor, right? Because what you're doing is you're trying to find information that's useful and relevant, but you pay attention to that stuff that's most threatening because you're trying to protect yourself from perhaps the worst case. I think any one of us who is now has a dry cough and um, a runny nose may have convinced ourselves that we have COVID-19. Um, so I think there is this downside um, that we see in this kind of information and in the information seeking part. And, and given that our information environment is now flooded with 
lots and lots of threatening information. I do think this only serves to spin up people's anxiety level. And so while information seeking is a really good coping mechanism, that doesn't mean that it's always going to serve to lower people's anxiety. And one of the other things we know about coping is that avoidance is a coping mechanism also. And so I think if people start to be overwhelmed by the news um, about the very rapidly changing, threatening information, they may start to tune out entirely. Um, And that's not great for public health either. Um, I think in terms of um, the policies that people want when they're anxious are often policies, particularly in our public health studies. So as um, Bethany said, we um, convince people to be anxious about these public health threats by either using newspaper stories or asking them. And we have another study using um, H1N1 in 2010 to ask them to tell us what makes them anxious about H1N1. To be clear to all the listeners, we do not give people any of these diseases. We just ask them to think about them or be anxious about them. Um, and then we ask them what kind of policies they want. Um, and they, people who are um, in their anxiety conditions are more supportive of lots of policies that the WHO recommends to fight, um, say, in the smallpox, um, this, a smallpox outbreak, like quarantine, like ta- taking people's property that was infected. And while that may help in public health, it also means taking away people's civil liberties. And if we go even further and think about like when are people willing to take away other civil liberties, it's normally, and we know this from the other literature on civil liberties, it's normally um, more people are more supportive of taking liberties away from groups they already dislike. And so I think one of the downsides, and we don't have a lot of this work in our book, but I think we're, what we're seeing in the political environment is that um, some of this scapegoating and um, attitudes and attacks on Asian Americans uh, may be one of the downsides. People are anxious, they're looking to protect themselves, and then they're kind of lashing out at groups that they're blaming for the threat itself. So Bethany, walk us through that H1N1 study that you did um, and what the findings were, and then if you could contemplate what what kind of a setup you might do to to study the current outbreak and and whether you'd have any hypotheses about things being different. So we have students in the lab, um, and this was done at UT, and we asked them to list either their thoughts or their feelings. Um, So when you think about H1N1, what do you think? Or when you think about H1N1, what do you worry about? And that worry induction is, the idea is to hold H1N1 thoughts constant across both groups and just crank up the anxiety in one of them. Um, it's a very subtle manipulation, um, but it's it's nice in that it gets everybody thinking about what makes them personally worried about this. But H1N1 was, if we think back to that time, um, you know, it was a fear that was all around in this country. And, you know, by the time we did this study, the height of the fear had dropped um, a bit, but it was still salient um, for these students. And so we got differences in these groups on levels of anxiety. Um, We asked them after they do their thought listings, um, who do they trust in? And again, have the the split between expert and non-expert. uh, actors, they were given the opportunity to say how confident they felt in, for instance, in the federal government. 
and how confident they felt in in President Obama, um, president at the time. Um, and we found um, a boost in confidence for the government and and not for uh, President Obama, which again, we, we put to this that in a public health crisis, it's not really the space for political actors. Um, we, we want to see um, government organizations, particularly those with medical expertise, put front and center and um, less emphasis on the partisan or blatantly political leaders. Um, we also in that study had a um, one of the only times I've gotten to do a behavioral um, measure, um, would love to again, but um, we asked people at the end um, if they wanted to take either hand sanitizer or a um, pen as a thank you for doing the study. And uh, they were about 50 cents a piece. I had done, we had done research co um, comparing these. And so we just had like a little gift basket and see, you know, what people wanted to take away. And of course, we have an RA recording what they took as they left um, the lab, um, hypothesizing that the, the worried condition would be more likely to take the hand sanitizer, although the pen was very nice. Um, so we do see a, a small and, uh, you know, significant if you buy the um, 0.10 cutoff um, effect of, but small, um, of, of heightening anxiety about H1N1, um, boosting um, support for, not support for, actually the behavior of taking hand sanitizer. That is a good for foreshadowing, I think, to how we would do this today. You would have ceiling effects and all the hand sanitizer would be taken. You wouldn't have hand sanitizer to provide, right? Um, and so if we were to replicate the study today, um, I, you know, I don't think it would be interesting maybe to do the experiment, but I'd be more interested in just doing a survey and seeing we're at such a high, high moment of anxiety. Um, how ordinary people are responding and and what they think about, you know, who's the expert. I don't know, perhaps Shana has a more creative mind on an experimental induction. No, I actually have a slightly different hypothesis, which is I think one of the things that we find in the lab is we do actually can make students anxious in March about a flu outbreak in, in our induction. It does work, but it is not high levels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I do think some of that is reflected in um, the differences across age groups today. And I do wonder if we did this again, if all the hand sanitizer would be gone, if we focused again on undergraduates. So I think that young people, I mean, if you see those pictures of the beaches in Florida, it is not clear to me that young people are taking it as seriously as people our age and older. Um, and so I do wonder if there is both a difference in the levels of anxiety and the kinds of behaviors that young people might take because the framing of this um this disease has been that it is not young people at risk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they are, <laughs> don't think they are properly anxious, right? As a whole, right? Obviously there's variation, but I do wonder if we would find some of those same findings, but like the, the levels would be different across different age groups um, in anxiety. And then their, their kind of behavioral, um, their behaviors might be different across age groups too.
And what about the uh, the partisan and ideological patterns? Um, I think you find uh, that at least you cite some literature that the conservatives might have sort of a more uh, instinctual uh, response to, to threats. Um, uh, but of course, in this circumstance, we had Fox News and the president dis downplaying the, the threat for a couple of weeks and then kind of switching. So um, what, what should we expect uh, from, from the previous research about those kind of partisan and ideological patterns and, and how would they apply to this circumstance? Yeah, so um, I think this is one of the areas that seems most different in our study and in today's environment. Um, one is over time, and and two is just the way that we designed the experiments. So in our both the smallpox and the H1N1 experiments, um, we do ask people after we make them anxious um, who they trust. Um, and we give them, as Bethany said, a variety of actors who are both relevant and irrelevant to kind of medical expertise. But we never have a condition. And so we find that the kind of trust in medical actors goes up and there's no, but we never find that trust goes down in political actors. Um, and we always find trust going up or having no effect. So I think there's a couple of things that are different today. As you mentioned, one is that we were able to make people across the partisan spectrum all equally anxious about um, about health threats. And secondly, that um, the polarization today and the kind of information, the news environment today has made it very difficult, at least to this point. I think that's changing um, for Republicans to both recognize the threat from COVID-19 um, and then want to actually do something to counter that threat. And that comes a lot from the messaging from the White House and from conservative media that is telling people, you know, co coronavirus isn't a big threat. It's not it's a hoax, right? And so, again, that's changing rapidly. And so we should see these kind of differences across parties shrink a bit. Um, but if you look back at some of the kind of findings on Ebola, for instance, um, you know, Republicans were much less satisfied with how the, um, the Obama administration was dealing with Ebola. And, you know, we all feel better um, generally when our party is in charge. But um, this kind of undercutting that the White House has been doing of the CDC messages and the messages from the states, um, that we don't have that in our, our studies. And so it's hard to think about um, if we had had that in kind of 10 years ago, what we would have seen in terms of both threat and um, who people trust. I think it would look a lot like today. Um, but we don't have that kind of partisan undercutting like in the in our studies. So our studies are what happens in a world where um, the president basically lets the CDC be in charge and and is consistent with those messages. So, Bethany, you also find that these threats increase support for these kinds of protective policies. So remind us what those are and how they might apply to today. Yeah, so the protective policies depend on the, the area, right? What protects us from a terrorist threat changes or is different from what protects us in a, in a public health threat. For a public health threat, um, 
it would be things like uh, requiring quarantines, taking away property from people who are infected, um, those sorts of protective measures, the sorts of things we're all asked to to now engage in, right? Um, social distancing or what I like to call physical distancing because I haven't used my phone more um, than I am now, um, right? Um, self, self-quarantine, those sorts of um, actions. Uh, and I think we're seeing it play out now, um, Though there's differences in what some elites are telling us to do, the overwhelming message is to stay home. Um, and and we see a lot of, despite, um, uh, okay, so there is variance on this, as Shana correctly notes, um, the, the spring breakers are, I guess, going to spring break. But um, lots of us are, are following that norm, staying in our homes and trying to reduce contact with other people. And of course, we have to in plenty of places. Our restaurants are closed. Our places of work are telling us not to come in, um, and you know, other people are just simply losing their jobs. Um, and so there has been a shift towards um, a reduced contact with other people. And you don't foresee any, uh, I guess, bigger. I mean, are things like shutting down elections or not letting people travel? Are those in those category as well? Yeah, a note on the elections one. I've never seen um, such a, a diverse group of political scientists come together on this petition to, um, you know, protect the election and hold the election in November. Um, so I want to say that my hope is that protective policy around the election is renewed enthusiasm and support for vote by mail. Um, right. So protective policy there could be how do we make our voting procedures um, safe and democracy safe for for us and and for our members of Congress. They need to be able to vote uh, remotely. So those are some some protective policies that I think could could help us and and still stay consistent with our democratic goals. Um, obviously, shutting the borders. Um, and, and refraining from travel, our um, protective policies. So Shana, you uh, didn't just uh, anticipate the public health uh, agenda. You also uh, wrote a book uh, right before uh, Trump, the Trump administration, uh, where you talked a lot about the use of immigration threats. So tell us a little bit about um, your findings on immigration and what has changed, if anything, in the Trump era in terms of confirming uh, your, your findings. I can I can handle it. I can handle this one if you like, Shana. Um, so with the immigration studies, we see this as a partisan threat, and and where you know Shana was explaining that in the public health crisis, we never see trust in someone go down. Right? Um, anxiety either doesn't affect trust in a variety of actors, or it boosts trust in medical experts. Now, in, in immigration, when you put people in a condition of anxiety, they can actually have lower levels of trust. It's a partisan issue, and partisans are going to blame um, partisans for things that make them anxious. So, um, our on our trust um, uh, measures, we find that if you're when you're more anxious about immigration, you're more trusting of the Republican Party, which is really interesting. This is Democrats and Republicans become more trusting. It's not that Democrats start to trust Republicans more on immigration than other Democrats. It's 
they trust Republicans more when they're anxious than they trust Republicans when they're not anxious. Um, Republicans trust Republicans more when they're anxious than they trust Republicans when they're not anxious. Um, so we attribute this to um, the owned issues sort of literature where um, Republicans in general were thought of as more capable on issues of immigration. This is something that I don't think holds up now. Um, but in the blame side of things, when Republicans were anxious about immigration, they actually lowered their level of trust in the Democratic Party and in the president, um, President Obama, at the time we're doing the research. So one of the differences from the public health research to the immigration research is we see these partisan dimensions, and we also see um, how anxiety can lower trust um, when it's played out in this partisan space. That's really interesting, I think, for um, hooking that into what do we expect in a public health crisis now? When the public health crisis is partisan, which it wasn't in our book, I'm wondering, anxiety might boost trust in medical experts. Anxiety in particular among Democrats they already don't trust Republicans and they don't trust the president, but the prediction off of our immigration studies, remember those Republicans didn't trust the Democrats or President Obama either, is their trust is gonna get even lower. So first thing I think off of the immigration studies to today's political context is that anxiety over coronavirus for Democrats would lower levels of trust in uh, the president and the Republican party perhaps. Um, we also saw that anxiety over immigration boosts support for, um, for protective policies in that realm. So we've had uh, two elections in a row where uh, President Trump has uh, tried to raise the threat of immigration, talking about um, caravans coming soon. Do you see this new threat as impeding his, his ability to, to do that? Is Are the Democrats able to, to use this as a threat in any way that, that would help them electorally? Um, or is this going to, going to just sort of automatically uh, be placed uh, on the, the president? Yeah, no, these are great questions. So I think there's a couple ways to think about this. The first is that um, the reason that Trump uh, benefits from the kind of immigration anxiety is partially, as Bethany said, this kind of literature about which issues the each party owns. And the Republican Party has this kind of longstanding um, issue ownership over immigration. And so when people are worried about immigration they and we know what they tell us they're worried about they're they're worried about issues that um republicans tell them to be worried about which is uh things along the lines of again loss of language um job competition that kind of thing and the solutions that the republican party um offers are ones that um Democrats and Republicans alike, when they are made anxious about those kinds of things, are more likely to say, yeah, the Republicans can handle that. So that's the benefit. And that's why um, the Trump administration talks about the border so often, because it to them, it's this issue that um, benefits them. And that's where they want to have the fight. Um, where, you know, where issues aren't owned is on uh, there are some issues that aren't owned by the parties, and some of those are like performance issues. And I think that's where we're going to put coronavirus. So I think the the Republican Party is going to get a lot of the blame, particularly the president is going to get a lot of the blame on 
um, the performance on coronavirus. Um, I don't think anyone really owns public health outbreaks. The Democratic Party sends, tends to benefit when there's discussions about health care more generally, but I don't think they, we don't have any evidence that they kind of own pandemics. It, this is more, more like Hurricane Katrina. So this is more about, you know, how well the party um, in power is handling the current crisis. And I think the, there's a kind of little bit of a, there's a, Danger here, though, if the Democrats look like they are um, trying to benefit off of people's pain from the pandemic um, and try and make them remember how anxious they were, I think that is not necessarily a winning strategy. I think the the strategy is to kind of focus on the uh, the performance aspect and the blame attribution um, for the president in 2020. No problem. What about... Let me rephrase it as um, for, for Shana as as thinking about um, potential long term effects. That is, um, are these you know you observe some some short term um, uh, effects um, from your experiments? But is there anything that we should expect um, that 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 will last uh, from having this kind of a collective experience? Yeah, so I, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure that from the book we have. The ability to say a lot, except about the kind of length of how long anxiety lasts. Um, we do have some evidence that say um, concerns about terrorism are um, are very high and long lasting. So we can see from survey data that say um, concerns about a terrorist attack in 2002 were a really strong predictor of vote choice in 2004, and that we can see the effects of, say, terrorism anxiety over the lo- the last almost 20 years now in terms of the policies people um, prefer and their attitudes about things like immigration and border security. I don't know if we know yet uh, about the effects of a pandemic like this on um, longer term, but I do think we're seeing this kind of opening of a policy window in ways that maybe we haven't seen in the past. So um, again, part of this is just speculation, but the kind of government response that is happening now of maybe sending people cash payments um, and um, making testing free and opening up Medicare to telemedicine um, and increasing this social safety net those kinds of things, I think once people start, and they are coming directly from, again, the anxiety over this disease and the implications for the economy and um, people's lives. Um, but I think once people start to see like things could be better in my life if I could have more flexibility in my job and I could maybe get some more cash from the government, that's not so bad. I think the longer term implications we're going to see are actually in that policy realm about opening up the possibilities of the way people are thinking about um, the social safety net. And again, our book can't speak to that particularly, um, except that, again, once that anxiety turns on, um, in, in some policy areas, it's hard to turn off, right? Immigration, terrorism. These are areas that it's been hard to turn off the anxiety. In the in pandemics and public health, I think you can turn them off, right? So once it looks like we don't have to be in our homes anymore, people not, might not be worried as much anymore. But some of those policies that have changed, they might be now part of our p- 
political lives in ways that we don't notice um, in the longer term. Uh, Bethany, we want to know what you're doing from here, and we also want to give it, get a chance to uh, talk about where you see the field uh, going from here. If we do see a uh, uptick in uh, COVID-19 studies two years from now, what, what do you expect we'll, we'll be learning and trying to learn uh, from this? I think that where this has to go in our in our work, we didn't do messaging from partisan sources, and that just seems like an obvious extension. Um, you know, in our smallpox experiment, it was the New York Times story in all conditions. But um, an obvious extension would be, you know, how is that story received when it's the New York Times versus on Fox News versus. Um, something you see it saw on your Facebook feed versus something that's passed around um, by your friend. Um, and so the source of the messaging, I think, is an obvious place to go. Now, I've done some work in this area on um, threats to elections and, and stories about threats to elections with some co-authors. Um, and this was um, from uh, the Democracy Fund and their interest in protecting elections. Um, and we found that um, those sorts of source cues can, can matter in terms of taking threats seriously. Um, what else would we do if we were to, I think one of the other interesting things um, that is going to be important moving forward is the sustained nature of this threat. There's got to be something different about an attack that happens and then it's over versus a sustained, you see it coming, it's coming slowly, and then it, it, it ramps up. And we still don't really know the trajectory of this threat, right? But um, it's the difference between uh, growing up someplace with an earthquake versus growing up someplace with hurricanes or, right, um, some, some things happen and then they're done, some things you see coming. And what's different about this threat, it seems, is that it's it's just playing out over time. And, and that's got to have different ramifications for our politics. I think one of the things I, I, I would be interested in, in thinking about, um, I do have some um, new studies with some co-authors going out into the field basically right now looking at responses to coronavirus. Um, I think one of the things we're interested in that project is how widespread um, threats um, are and and what kinds of policy areas they apply to. So um, again, the the kinds of solutions that are offered to different kinds of threats do vary by um, party sometimes. And so the kinds of things that the White House is suggesting that we do to try and stay safe, like shut the borders and um, uh, that kind of more restrictive immigration policy is only one set of possible answers. The other one is more along the lines of what we talked about is expanding the social safety net. Um, but it might be also the case that immigration, that um, I'm sorry, uh, coronavirus has a kind of effects on all sorts of other kind of societal outcomes about altruism. And there's, there's going to be a lot of I think downstream effects, and we don't know what they all are yet. Um, I think there'll be lots of interesting studies on effects on air pollution and on work from home, and there'll be all sorts of like interesting implications. One that we talked about um, with a reporter this week was: I have hope that um, this um, 
this experience will ha- put a dent into the anti-vaccine movement, which I think is very dangerous um, in that I think the experience of seeing how bad things can get with a pandemic when there is no vaccine may make it harder to make the argument that vaccines aren't necessary, that herd immunity or essential oils or whatever it is that people say will keep you safe are clearly not working in this instance. And so that's my hope is that we'll see some effects of um, this experience on those other kinds of movements like the anti-vaccine movement. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. We have joined the Democracy Group Podcast Network and are thrilled to join some of our favorite podcasts in democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more. Thanks to Bethany Albertson and Shana Gadarian for joining me. Please check out Anxious Politics and then listen in next time.